episode 57, The Payer Provider Hookup. Today, I speak with John Seitz from UST Global. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. My guest today, John Seitz, is a healthcare transformation strategist, and he is also on the leadership team over at UST Global. John has what definitely seems to me to be a really well-deserved reputation for bringing the right solutions and the right people together to craft innovative solutions. His primary focus right now, and what we talk about mostly today, is helping payers and providers collaborate, and also helping to manage the bottom line of that collaboration, which is value-based contracting. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, John. Uh, thanks. Good morning. Sue, so let's talk about UST Global. Can you just describe what it is that your organization does? That's pretty simple. UST Global is a obviously a global provider of IT services, typically to Fortune 500 Global 1000 customers, with the uh, motto that we have uh, fewer clients but more attention. So we're not the we're not the guys out there picking up hundreds and hundreds of clients, but the, the, the relationships and the engagements we do do tend to go deep and long, right? For example, in healthcare, we've been working for Anthem now for 15 years. It's one of our largest clients. We service most of the major divisions inside Anthem. We're a full-service professional IT firm. And what that means in healthcare, I guess, is is doing things like consumer engagement, high-level analytics, business process, outsourcing management, care management, claims processing. We're spending a lot of time right now on cybersecurity. Things like legacy modernization and moving people over to the cloud. We're doing a fair amount of design work that we, we call design for happiness. Kind of feeds back to that whole consumer engagement thing. I think we do everything from basic blocking and tackling in the IT space to high-level architecture, solution, engineering. Why don't we touch on on you for a moment before I drill down into some of the, the healthcare verticals that the UST deals with. You are the healthcare transformation strategist over at UST. What does that entail? Well, I'm actually the, the head of the global healthcare practice at UST. And I'm the executive client partner for Anthem. So for me, anything that has to do with healthcare in USC is under my domain. What I don't do is delivery. We've got thousands of people that actually deliver, but my role is focused on new business strategy and working with the clients we have to to make sure we're maximizing their potential and, and bringing value in. So one of the things that I do is I, I work with a lot of our partner companies and and identify and establish those companies that we can bring into UST as part of a, a more comprehensive solution. So, for example, we're doing a fair amount of work with a company called MD Live in the telemedicine space, but then I might be in a meeting with MD Anderson, and I can figure out a way that MD Live ought to play in that 
in that role. So we're doing that now with a company called Sandlot Solutions for Interoperability out of Dallas, Texas. To me, one of the more exciting things that UST does that I don't see a lot of people doing is we're not just uh, whatever we sell, we'll go out and find the right partners or the right combination of partners. So if I can take a Sandlot, combine it with an MD Live, combine it with an XTV, and then create a solution that hasn't been seen in the marketplace before, to me, that's something that is exciting and, and brings real value to the customer. At the top of this conversation, you you kind of gave a a list of types of projects that UST gets involved in, which I would definitely like to circle back. The Sandlot comment that you just made is very intriguing. So could you talk about that a little bit? You know, at the end of the day, what are you building there? Sandlot is, is one of only, I think, two or three proven technologies that allow you to do deep data exchange. One of the big things going on in healthcare right now is payer-provider collaborations, right? You see Anthem launched this Vividi in the Los Angeles area where they combine Anthem with Cedars and, and I think six or seven or eight different uh, provider organizations. All those organizations are on separate and distinct medical records, billing systems, claim systems. You know, there's no commonality of data there. So using an engine like Sandlot, we're able to ingest all of that data and then in both a structured and unstructured way, perform things, you know, that range from analytics on the cost side to care management decisions that we can push to the providers, right? That might be best practices or clinical pathways or something. So a company like Sandlot, uh, has a very unique, but, but you know, we need to partner together. In other words, they can't do it without us. We can't do some of this without them to be the universal translator of data, if you would. And that, the name of that project is Vividi, you said? Yeah, I, I Anthem launched this maybe uh, a year and a half, two years ago. It's It's a partnership with Anthem and Cedars and St. John's. I think uh, Saddleback Hospital down in Orange County, which is a true payer-provider partnership where they're all at risk for performance, right? There's a certain amount of dollars available in the system, and they all work together to make sure that care is delivered in a way that is efficient and profitable, and then they all share it in the profits. Rather than the what I call the traditional adversarial system in healthcare, right? For as long as I've been in this business, which is 40 years, it's it's the doctors and the hospitals do everything they can to maximize their bill and collect the most amount of money, and the payers do everything they can to reduce what they pay out within reason. One side wins and the other side loses. In models like Vividi, you're setting it up now to where Everybody has to win together. Obviously, there's a lot of transformation going on in healthcare, but I was kind of thinking of two camps. One camp would be payers, and then the other camp would be providers assuming risk, so sort of becoming payers themselves. 
what you're talking about is kind of a middle way where a payer and a, a, a set of providers get together. I mean, do they have some sort of, is this a, considered a JV? Is this a, like another kind of entity that's a joint venture? Oh, yeah. Between? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a true, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, actually a separate corporation. You can, you can Google it, it'll, it'll show up. It's a, a separate entity that all of those different payers and partners are shareholders in. And just to be clear, this is like the next step ACO. I mean, if, if you think about what an ACO is for the most part, it's this thing in a lighter version. But I, I believe that if you were to look at United or Aetna or Cigna or Anthem, they're all moving into a model where they're doing either formally or, or less structured these payer provider collaborations and the single biggest thing you're probably seeing that that is the same as this but call it a different thing is the proliferation of performance-based contracting. Before we move to performance-based contracting, let me just ask you a couple more questions just to satisfy my own curiosity about, about Vividi. How are these, you know, you, you had mentioned a, a couple of different provider chains. I'm assuming that those provider chains are in some ways competitors. So are they, they are. Are, are they frenemies in this, in this instance? <laughs> well, I like, I like, I haven't heard that term yet. Yes, I guess they are. Uh, because you know, by day they they probably compete, but but for this set of population of patients, and I, I I can't tell you how many members they have enrolled in this Vivity thing. People could go across; they could go to Cedars for one thing, and you know, a different provider for something else, and it's all under the Vivity umbrella. So in, in that, they collaborate. But one of the big challenges now is having that data exchange across all those different providers. And that's where something like a UST slash Sandlot collaboration plays together. Right? And you read my mind because the next thing that I was thinking about is how much technology would be required in order to make that a reality. Yeah. I mean, not only would you need continuity of care records, but then I'm assuming also, and you had alluded to this before, somebody's creating care paths. I think you had said something about, you know, coming up with the best care. Sure, um, sure. You could load that. You could load that with whatever clinical pathways you want. But here's, I'll give you my sort of analogy that I, I, I use often, and it seems to make sense to people. The other day, I had a fly to Indianapolis. I took Delta Airlines, right? And I got there safe, and I came home. And the next week, I fly to India, and I get there safe, and I get home. But the skies are not controlled by Delta Airlines. Delta knows what's going on with their planes, but there's an air traffic system that knows what's also going on if it's United or American or Southwest, whatever. There's this thing that sees all the planes flying and, and routes my Delta plane into Indianapolis. If you think about this in terms of healthcare, Cedars or, or Kaiser or whoever, they're looking at their planes, right? They can see what's going on with their planes, but they don't see what's going on in the whole sky for the most part. Where the, where the whole system is changing is to allow you to look at the whole sky and see what all the planes are doing 
and who's going at what speed and who's flying at what altitude. Well, translate that into who's delivering quality, who's providing cost transparency. If I go to seven different places for my knee surgery, I'm going to get seven different prices. All of this stuff is now starting to become connected. One of the areas that we think is particularly exciting from both a dollar perspective and a care quality perspective is being able to look at different data sources. Again, whether I'm on Epic or Cerner or GE or Athena Health or whatever, I'm only seeing the data that's on those systems. If I'm really managing care and I'm really managing costs, I need to be able to look across that, right? Because the patient doesn't just go to one provider with one system. He goes to multiple providers with multiple systems. So I'm just kind of thinking about how that looks in this messy middle that we're in. So, you know, kind of back to the Vividi example, or and I'm sort of using that as a proxy. I'm sure there's other organizations across the country that are doing a similar thing. But would you have, because Anthem is the payer in this particular instance, which is part, the the sitting at the head of the table of this party or at the table of this party. Do, do you get into situations where, you know, Cedar sinai has, patients which are part of that larger entity that you have, you know, the full patient record and you've got all this information because they're within the this vividity umbrella. And then you've got another patient who isn't because Anthem isn't their plan. So I could see how in the messy middle this would be kind of complicated or am I overthinking this? Well, no, I don't think you're overthinking it. To, to get to any sort of true improvement in systems, you have to go through the messy middle. But it, it, the, even the messy middle is an improvement over, look, I just fly my Delta plane and I don't care what's going on with the plane next to me. That's, that's a major, that's a recipe for disaster. If all I'm doing is watching my Delta plane and I'm not watching the American plane that's trying to land and the United plane that's trying to take off, that's a surefire failure. So we're getting to that point where we can be more like the air traffic control system and have visibility. And I, I think that's probably the key word is visibility over what's going on with more parts of the system at the same time. Now add to that real time, because up until the last, you know, 18, 24 months, everything is, is retrospective. We're looking at data that's old. It might be six months old, it might be a year old, but it isn't, it isn't real-time data. And how do you make real care and cost decisions on historical data? It, it has much less value. Imagine if I'm a doctor and I, I have an app on my phone and I'm working within that system, whether it be Vividi or, or whatever, some kind of anthem provider. And just like I measure my steps on my iWatch or my activity or how many times I stood up today, what if I got the, the key metrics that are going to actually move the needle in healthcare? What if, I, what if I was able to view that on my phone or my watch in real time? Now you're talking about significant reform and the ability for people to move the needle. To me, the single biggest thing that's going to happen in healthcare is the ability to move the needle in real time, whether that's care, cost, quality, access. If you, if you take every dimension in healthcare, that's important. 
that drive dollars and drive quality, it has to be in as close to real time as possible for it to make any meaningful difference. Don't you think that's probably one of the seismic shifts that's going on now? I mean, as I'm talking to you, my iWatch is going off and telling me that I, I've been sitting too long and I'm supposed to stand up. <laughs> Need one of those standing desks, my friend. Right? So, But imagine if I was a doctor doing my rounds and my watch went off and said, you know, Mary Smith could be discharged in the next hour. Or Mary, Mary, or Mary Smith just had a, a, an, M, an MI and got admitted to the hospital. She's, down, she's sitting down in the ER. Okay, we could take this from two different aspects. I mean, what you're talking about right now is reactive lifetime data. I mean, this is what's going on with this particular patient at this exact moment. The other interesting thing that I'd like to explore a little bit is from a proactive standpoint. Obviously, in certain disease categories, more than others, maybe, or at least we've gotten further in defining in, in certain disease categories more than others, what exactly is the best practice care path? You know, what exactly is, does evidence-based medicine suggest that we do? As you are looking at all of this, you know, patient continuity and, and working hard for value-based medicine and even in the performance-based contracting, which I'm sure we're going to talk about or I intend to talk about in a couple of seconds, what we're talking about there at, at a you know, more functional level is prescribing patients to a certain care path. How have you seen with some of these projects that you're working on, provider organizations agreeing what that care path is and adapting to what the aligning to the larger point of view relative to what does a best practice care path look like and how should these patients be managed? I'd say that there's probably three things you want to consider or at least be looking at. One is a lot of people have clinical pathways, their care paths, and there's some that are very well defined. And there's some that are universal, and, you know, you can load those in, and, and all kinds of people have them. The second, and, and we're working on a project in the U.K. That, that's heavily involved in sort of the already established, how to access already established and, and well-defined care paths. But the second thing is then you've got institutions like the Mayo Clinic or MD Anderson that are always groundbreaking new clinical care paths. And, you know, we just started a project with MD Anderson where we're going to take ingest large amounts of employee data. We're going to go to large employers or they're going to go. I don't want to say we. MD Anderson is going to go to large employers. People that, you know, like a Walmart that might employ 200 a million people or something, ingest their data and then analyze it proactively for cancer risk and cancer, identify cancer risk or, or assessment of cancer threat. There, you need something that's very flexible and you can adjust care paths in real time and, and they're more customizable, right? I mean, I would imagine that if I go to MD Anderson, if I get diagnosed for cancer and I see my primary care physician in the middle of Kansas, I would almost guarantee you he's going to put me on a different regimen of treatment then if I if I jumped in a plane and flew to MD Anderson and checked myself in that, not that the primary care guy in Kansas isn't good, but I'd want to be at MD Anderson where they're trying the latest and the greatest. 
So how do we and how do they, and I, I know they're very keen and very committed to doing this, how do they disseminate their latest treatment tasks to a wider audience? So that the guy in Kansas, because not everybody is going to jump in an airplane and fly to MD Anderson. This is a very isolated example, but but it's going on with leading institutions around the world. How do they get that customizable, very cutting-edge care path disseminated? That was the, the second thing. And then the third thing is they didn't have to overlay that what I call predictive or cognitive analytics, where... You take a population of patients and, and you can predict, let's not wait till something happens to them and say, oh, here's your best care path. Let's look at that patient ahead of time and, and predict. And there's some really exciting work going on with this. And, you know, we could talk about a couple of examples. What if you were able to see a weather forecast? And in that weather forecast, it says the pollen count is going to rise dramatically. There's been some rain in the area of Dallas, Texas, and the winds are going to be just right, and the temperature's just right, to it's it's going to shoot the pollen. I think there's a website, pollen.com or something. It's going to shoot up the, the pollen count tremendously. Well, what if you knew all the patients in that zip code or those zip codes? You now know that X number of percent of those people are susceptible to that pollen count, and they're going to end up going to see their doctor or their primary, or they're going to end up in the ER. And we've actually done some work on this. There's a couple of companies doing some stuff on it. What if you could text those people proactively and say, hey, the pollen count in Dallas, Texas is rising. You're at risk for this. You should take, you know, 10 milligrams of Benadryl in, in the next 12 hours or something. You know, it would be a good idea. So that's a whole different type of way to think about best practices and clinical pathways. If you can prevent something from happening, that's even better than how you would treat something once it happens. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. So it's almost like you've got a well path and a sick path, you know, like if somebody has a propensity toward a condition, for example, then... What do you what do you do on an ongoing basis to ensure that they don't fall down? Right. A, a so, Stacy, all, all all that is possible. I mean, look, what's what's one of the single biggest things that happen to people? They get dehydrated. What if, what if you know your Fitbit or whatever it is is monitoring your your intake of fluids, and your little thing goes off on your wrist that says uh, you haven't had enough. You know, go drink eight ounces of water or something. A lot of people won't comply. But isn't that a better way to deal with things? And and all of all of these technologies are becoming rapidly available. And as we can ingest more amounts of data from more different data sources, then it's a question of just now filtering the data to get to the information that's relevant. I was just going to say that at, from from two different directions, and we can certainly talk about both because I bet you have an opinion on both. Um, you know, in one direction, obviously, alert fatigue is a thing and we can't have providers being inundated by noise, you know, like alerts that aren't relevant, which is what you just said. But then on the other hand, which I'd also love to hear your opinion on, you know, you've got a consumer who's got a Fitbit 
And obviously any alerts or things that are coming through that Fitbit or that iWatch or whatever are things which I have personally configured. I mean, does my provider even know I have an iWatch? Probably not. So there's also sort of some data integration that would need to happen from the patient side if they're if they're getting alerts from all directions. How do you reconcile yep. all of this? I think you actually touched on it, right? I mean, part of it is the patient configuring what needs to happen. The, the second is filtering out data points that aren't necessarily uh, relevant. But I think if you look, let, let's go back to the second. Let's kind of weave this into the conversation. If you, if you think about performance-based contracting, and I've had the opportunity to look at what that looks like for most of the major providers, and guess what? There's a total of somewhere around, it's between 18 and 20 metrics that they measure that make up the whole universe of, of what they consider to be performance. And if you if you put this on sort of a matrix where all those those factors like readmission rates, uh, infection, OB, you know, obser- observations, escalation rates, whatever. And then across the top of the chart, you put who are the people that move the needle. So there's not that many metrics if, if you distill it down. And then if you actually look at who's going to move the needle, it's going to be the ER doctor, the hospitalist, the discharge planner, the care manager, the RN on the floor, and the hospital administrator, right? There's not that many people on the y-axis. So there's not that many metrics on the x-axis. There's not that many needle movers on the y-axis. And then if you, you put an X in the box, one against the other, Believe it or not, you don't have that much data that needs to go to that many people. Once you learn how to grab all the data and filter it and distill it down, it's like a funnel, right? You start with a tremendous amount of data, but then if you funnel it down to the right metrics to the right people, it's not, you know, I'm not asking somebody to look at the Encyclopedia Britannica every hour. You're you're really focused down on some really key metrics. And then, you know, getting people to take care of themselves better, you know, that's another three-hour discussion. Like on this project with MD Anderson, they're going to equip everybody with a customized, uh, you haven't seen it on the market yet, it's being developed, we're working with the company that's developing. It's going to be a new type of wearable that monitors environmental factors as well. So it knows what's going on with your air quality and and your water quality and everything else, because those are all cancer-related risk. Those are all risk factors related to cancer. So as as the stuff we're wearing gets smarter, and the, the, the way you can filter data becomes more intelligent, and you can start applying things like, you know, we've all heard of Watson. You start applying Watson-type cognitive, that's that, cognitive analytics, right? If you want to think of it that way. Those things learn, machine learning. Within the next 12 to 24 months, we've really got some exciting drivers that can certainly impact both the quality of care and the cost of the thing that I'm finding very interesting about what you're you're saying is that providers have been sort of disintermediated from the whole wearable quantified self 
type of activity that's going on out there amongst consumers. So what I'm finding exciting about what you're saying is that providers are starting to step up and and maybe are going to prescribe wearables or, or get much more that outlier as it stands right now is going to become more commonplace. Right. So let's let's now close the loop. See, you gave me the perfect segue. If I want to close this... It's my job, John. <laughs> okay. If I want to close this circle, right, we started by talking about payer providers joining together to take risk to, to both win. So with that type of incentive or that type of system in place, and everybody wants the patient to have the best care, and that's a gift. Now that motivates people to do exactly what you're saying, right? I mean, I can envision a day not too far off where the doctors, you know, they all have different apps that they're then sharing. Why wouldn't a doctor prescribe an app for a patient? Say, hey, you need to do this. And why wouldn't an insurance company pay for it? Especially if there's a feedback mechanism that says it's really being used. I mean, what's one of the single probably the single biggest cost driver in healthcare is people not being compliant with either filling their prescription or taking them, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's an app for that. Indeed. (laughs) I don't want to sound like a a commercial for Apple or something, but they'll get smarter. Why wouldn't a doctor prescribe that? And why wouldn't a health plan reimburse for it? Because at, at the end of the day, the pennies that you spend on the app it, you know, it's a thousand times increase in benefit. In, Ratios off the chart. In fact, I heard a term I had never heard before the other day. Someone was talking about smart pharmaceuticals. And what they meant by that is the drug plus a wraparound of services or technology in order to help the patient take the drug properly or get the most benefit, get the best outcome out of that drug. And, and without, you know, without getting off onto the planet Pluto or something, maybe you could find somebody to have this discussion or do another podcast on it is the whole idea of precision medicine, right? If I start, if I start mapping my personal DNA against all the various drugs that are out there here, I, I give you my, my best example. Okay. On January the 24th, I suffered a massive heart attack and died. Seriously? I was out in the middle of the ocean in a sailboat race. And I had a massive heart attack. I had 100% occlusion of my left main coronary artery. And apparently they got me back in and got me to the hospital with about three or four minutes. The doctor tells me another five minutes he'd be talking to me by Ouija board. Okay. So I get my stents put in and I spend a couple of days in the CCU and then I go home. And then I start taking 13 or 14 pills a day. Right, I've got blood thinners and, and beta blockers and stuff to keep my stent open and this thing and that thing and the other thing. And how did the doctor describe it? I've got a wonderful doctor. I, so I have nothing, you know, I mean, terrific, saved my life. But how does he know whether I should be taking five milligrams, 10 milligrams, or 20 milligrams of a certain drug? He eyeballs me and sort of looks at my height and weight, thinks, okay, let's start this guy at 10 milligrams. It could be the right dose. It could be twice more than I need. It could be, you know, and then we see over time, is it effective and is it doing its job? If I could map my DNA against most drugs, they'd be able to prescribe with a a much finer degree of accuracy 
what I'd be taking. Well, think of how many billions of dollars that would save the healthcare system. That's like one example of precision medicine. Oh, yeah. To your earlier point, it's so backward right now with this um, doing trials. In other words, especially um, amongst oncology products, you just try a product and you wait and see if it works. And then if it doesn't work, you try something else. Whereas if you just did a genetic test at the very beginning, you'd be able to predict with accuracy whether the drug is going to actually work or not. So. Right. So now, now we're entering the era of uh, all I need is one DNA tag, right? My DNA is not going to change my entire life. So, you know, eventually we're all going to go get a DNA test. Now you build the database that maps those individual DNAs against all the possible uh, drug combinations. And while that seems like a daunting task, and it is, it's, it's not inconceivable that that could be done in the next couple of years, right? And you've got, you got this whole big data thing that's, I'm sure you could find other people to talk to about big data. Yeah, actually, but, on the podcast uh, this week is uh, Geraldine Garon from Data Donors, which is Wiki, the, the Wiki Foundation, Wikipedia, they're yeah. getting into collecting all of this, of, all of this data. So it's happening. It is indeed. I know one topic that we definitely want to get to, um, and I know we're running short on time. Do you have any words that you'd like to talk about about performance-based contracting or value-based contracting, or have we already exhausted that that topic? Is there some top line that you want to make sure that we discuss? Sure. Let me let me just kind of again. There's no doubt that everybody's moving there. I can tell you that in my discussions with the top the three largest payers in the country. They all say that by the year 2018, two-thirds of their contracts will be performance-based. And, and that, that performance could have a penalty or it could have a reward or probably more likely some combination of the two. So if I was going to get a dollar in reimbursement, depending on how I perform, I might get 80 cents or I might get a buck 20. That's a huge swing. But how am I gonna how am I gonna measure that? How am I gonna monitor it? And how am I gonna get the guy, as we talked about a little bit earlier, the guy that moves the needle, whether it's the hospitalist, the ER, the the, the nurse, whoever, how am I gonna get them that information in, in, in a way, in, in a time that it's gonna it's gonna impact what happens? Let let's think about, you know, do you have a dog, Stacy? I do don't a, pet, a dog or something? Well, but you get, you'll get the concept. If, yep. if I give my dog a treat for something he did yesterday, he, he has no clue. He just likes the treat, right? Yep. Or if I give him the shock collar for something he did last week, it's not going to change his behavior, is it? Nope. It has to happen immediately. What we've got to get to is is a way to... The performance-based contract is fine. Anybody can write a contract. It takes a couple of lawyers. Being able to get anything meaningful out of that is, I I think, one of our next big challenges. Everybody wants to do it. Everybody knows the value in doing it for both the patient and the provider. And now we have to get to a stage. And, and, you know, there's several companies doing some really exciting work in this. You know, we're kind of keen on how do we get this data filter it, get it down to the right people that are making the right decisions in the right amount of time. And, you know, it can be done. 
I mean, it's, it's being done, and it's it's kind of a neat. Uh, again, it, it, if we go back to the top of the conversation, it's one of those cool things. I'm extremely interested in in seeing move forward. And then I can kind of weave in one thing we probably didn't have time to discuss, which is all the mergers you see going on in healthcare, right? We see Anthem uh, with Cigna, we see Aetna with uh, uh, Humana. Well, all of to me, all of those things are going to propel and accelerate this whole concept of the importance uh, of value-based or performance-based contracting. Well, it sounds like we probably could have a four-hour conversation, my friend. We might have to have you back for part two. <laughs> Anytime. Maybe I can get Skype working by then. <laughs> <laughs> so if someone's interested in learning more about UST Global, where where would you direct them? UST-global.com. That's where all the info is, where all the cool people go? <laughs> all the cool people would go there. And if anyone wants to connect with me on LinkedIn, it's John, J-O-H-N, Sites, S-E-I-T-Z. And, and if you just put my name in, I don't think there's too many John Sites. And I'd be the guy I'd be the guy with USD Global in my title. You're more than welcome to connect. And, and I try to put some of these thoughts and some of these things up on a fairly regular basis, share some of the, the neat things that are going on, not just in UST, but th- that we see going on in healthcare around the world. Excellent. Well, everyone should uh, should definitely go there and, and, and learn more about these various topics that we've discussed that we have just touched the surface of today. Thank you so much for being on the program, John. Okay, Stacey. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.